This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Welcome today to our Hurt with Fetters podcast. I'm Greg Smith. Sitting here with Jason Carcher. Jason, it's good to see you again today. I'm glad to be here one final time. We're going to try to pull all these things together, maybe, and help us to to know how to think and how to pray and how to approach, you know, the issues of justice. As a child of God, as a believer, and that really is is the whole point. I want to begin just by asking you to you know, to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ relates to issues of criminal justice. Your story in particular, but everybody's story. Everyone who is incarcerated today, as we have said in the last podcast, is, a, is created in the image of God, loved by God, maybe the worst sinner in the world, but still loved by God. What impact or what is the relationship with the gospel of Jesus Christ to this issue? Well, I think primarily just to kind of place it in a, in a personal context. In the past episodes, uh, we talked about how in the victim impact statements at my trial, the manager of the restaurant, when she got up there and had an opportunity to say, you know, whatever she wanted to say to me, uh, everybody else had said, you know, they hoped I die in prison, you know, all of these different things. You know, she could have ex- joined the chorus. Yeah, she could express her anger, her angst, her whatever. And she just looked and said, God bless you. And just the way that that resonated in me, I did not understand it. I didn't know exactly what that was. But in hindsight, I can look and understand it as grace being afforded to me. And, and I think that coming to experience the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ has put into perspective for me the power of redemption, the power of reconciliation. There is no amount of punishment in a vindictive or a vengeance or retribution-style punishment that can resonate in a person's life in such a powerful way. And so the primary a way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ plays its role in the issue of criminal justice is its power to communicate the power of redemption, of restoration. And I know that secular society is not necessarily going to look to that, but if it only could, then it can begin to understand the power of redemption, the power of restoration, and to help people to get in a place where they can be restored back to society in a way where they can be productive on the outside. You came to know Christ or to follow Christ after you received this life sentence and after you were incarcerated. In fact, you were in administrative segregation or basically solitary confinement. And you shared in the past your, you know, how you you came to that place where you cried out to God and received salvation, his forgiveness, his grace. How has that event or that reality, that is that you have, that you're a recipient of the grace of God, forgiven, 
how has that not just changed you personally, but changed the way that you have endured, I guess would be the word, what you've endured as a prisoner? Well, when you think about how if you have somebody who has been involved in the criminal justice process by being arrested and charged, prosecuted, convicted for a crime, particularly like a felony, well, it automatically creates this dichotomy in your mind of us against them, you know, the good guys against the bad guys. However you saw yourself before, you begin to understand it in these terms because that's the narrative. And so when you come to prison, that is lived out. It's the inmate against the guards or convicts against the officers or however you want to construe it. It's us against them uh, mentality. And so people begin to do their time in a way to where they can get away with whatever they can get away with in order to circumvent the rules or the security of the institution, however that plays out. But when I first experienced uh, the life-transforming power of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the reality of that began to alter my perspective, I no longer see it in those terms. An officer is a human being just like I am, and I treat them with the same type of respect or even deference in this context that any human being would deserve. Even when I interpret things as being unfair or unjust, my responsibility as a human being is to treat them in a fair, in a just, in an equitable way. And so that's the way that I respond in this context. And it's helped me do my time. And I, I'm absolutely convinced that you know, that will translate whenever I'm afforded the opportunity to leave this place and go back into society. And given the mentality that I had before, also absolutely certain that if it is applied in the same way to anybody's life, no matter what they've done, they can experience that same type of success and that success can translate to success on the outside if they're given that opportunity. So how would you, when Christians or believers on the outside don't approach the issues of criminal justice from this theological perspective that simply being committing a crime or being convicted convicted of a crime does not remove you know the basic humanity that you possess with the image of God or under uh, under God's authority being created in his image when when Christians on the outside don't necessarily see that or appreciate it or speak to it in fact maybe you know buy into the current narrative what would you have to say about that. And in fact, let me just just read a sentence that you wrote and uh, and and just maybe let's let's respond in that way. You write when addressing the problem of mass incarceration in America, the one thing that sustains many Christians within the walls of the prison proves to be neglected when Christians on the outside attempt to speak to the problem. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is no matter what people think or the depth with which they bought into false narratives or alternative narratives to the Christian narrative, to the biblical narrative, the thing that sustains me is this is in fact the truth. Whatever false narratives there are, I have bought into and allow my life to be driven by what is true, the truth of God. The fact that no matter what society does, what society says, I am indeed created by God in His image and likeness, and by virtue of that have a 
inherent dignity and value and that regardless of what the world does, my responsibility is to act in a way that's consistent with that dignity and value, express that to other human beings regardless of the context. And I think that that helps sustain people inside prison who still labor under the ages of a, a false narrative. Well, you say that that proves to be neglected. That aspect or that biblical narrative is not the narrative that the majority of believers on the outside operate under. And that comes out when they uh, attempt to speak to it. And, I, you know, I'm, I would include myself in that even, I mean, because honestly, when you have not experienced what goes on inside the walls of the prison institution, very difficult to even visualize or understand it. But you write that, you know, the church has a basic uh, responsibility. In fact, you quote Aaron Griffith, who believes that evangelicals in particular are largely responsible for the current situation that's going on inside inside the prisons here. That it's, it's ev- evangelicals who buy into the false narrative rather than the biblical narrative that have argued for uh, stricter punishment, you know, harsher punishment, more laws and those type of things. And we are currently going through a political cycle now in which there's a lot of commercials on television by politicians saying, hey, elect me and I'll make sure that all these bad guys get locked up. And that resonates with an awful lot of people. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering how to balance because for an evangelical, for example, I think and maybe just any person in society would say, I want to live in a community where it's safe for kids to play out on the street without having to worry somebody's going to come by and get them. Or for my you know, wife and children or whatever to be able to walk down the street or that I can drive through the neighborhood without getting shot or whatever. So I, I want a safe place to live and the reality is is there's bad people out there that want to do bad things to me my property my family whatever and so yeah I do want politician or whatever to get those people off the street right but the, but even articulating that the narrative then is the good people and the bad people I mean I see that I hear that what I'm trying to do is figure out how, how to balance that and 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 so we're looking from two different perspectives help us to, to understand that well, I'm sympathetic to the situation, and I'm my eyes are wide open to the degree in which that rhetoric resonates with most people. People want to be safe, you know. But you you rewind and you look at the political atmosphere of Germany in the late 1920s, and it was the German theologian Helmut Theocli that said by 1933 the German people had stopped asking in whose name and at what price. And I think the same thing when when the rhetoric is put out there on these tougher laws, these harsher penalties, that rhetoric resonates with people, but people don't see through the rhetoric or beyond the rhetoric and ask the question, in whose name and at what price? And I think for Christians, for the church, that is the question that needs to be asked. Are, Are we doing this in a way that is consistent with the biblical narrative? Are we doing this in a way that brings glory to the God that we profess to serve? And are we doing this in a way that is consistent with the plan and the purposes of the God that we serve 
to see humanity first and foremost reconciled back to himself and to have reconciliation between one another and you can't have reconciliation without some form of restoration when there's ruptures occurring you mentioned Aaron Griffith and his book uh, is called God's Law and Order and it is an absolutely fascinating read for somebody who wants to know the degree to which the evangelical movement in the United States has shaped the harsher punishment of crime, that type of legislation, since the 1950s. But I will say again, and it's not just evangelicals, but the rhetoric of safe streets and safe communities and and locking away all the bad guys, locking away all the criminals, resonates with an awful lot of people. And, And if it didn't, these guys wouldn't be putting all these commercials out there. And so in this particular issue, it's very difficult, I think, for a child of God, for a believer, to to back up and take that theological perspective, to, to take myself out of the, the equation. And this might be true when we come to any type of theological issue. I tend to be self-centered or egocentric in terms of I approach issues based upon how do they affect me or how do they relate to me. Irregardless, I mean, this is human nature, and my human nature doesn't change simply when I come to Christ or uh, when I become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so it is an issue of responsibility on my part to step back and say, okay, what does God have to say about all of this? Which is ultimately, I think, the point that you're trying to make here. You write that in the past, the fundamental legal structure was based on and stemmed from a basic understanding of our responsibility before God, which is the, the biblical perspective. What is my responsibility before God? And how should I approach any issue, in particular, in this case, the criminal justice system, based upon what God has to say? Now, you're right, in the past, the fundamental legal structure was based upon an understanding of our responsibility before God. I'm wondering when that past was, because you're right now that today our legal system has abandoned any sense of that responsibility to God. I certainly agree with that last day, and I'm not sure when was it ever based upon that understanding of our responsibility before God? When you think about fundamental legal structures, so let's just think about Western jurisprudence traditionally. So people would trace back the emergence of the Western practice of jurisprudence to the Magna Carta in the 1200s. And then that, of course, would translate into the practice of European jurisprudence, which would then translate to the United States. So I think when you trace it back to the 13th century, that distant past, the role of the church in shaping uh, the principles of the Magna Carta were very significant. And so I think that the church obviously saw its responsibility before God. So I think that that's what I mean by the fundamental legal structure, the nuts and bolts of the legal structure, the presuppositions of the legal structure in the Western tradition of jurisprudence. It began as a project that saw its responsibility before God. Well, and, and, and just to you know, think about that, and we've, we've mentioned this before, that in the mission statement of Texas Department of Criminal Justice, there's no mention of punishment or retribution. There is the mention of, words not rec- restoration or even reconciliation, but... Um, Basically, the but, reformation of character by the promotion of positive behavior 
and then the facilitation of the restoration of somebody back to society through rehabilitation. So it's in there. The reality, though, is that the system basically just acts as a system of punishment to punish, to punish the offender, to not rehabilitate the offender. I think theologically for me, the rehabilitation is ultimately not possible without redemption and the need for redemption. And I guess where, where this point comes out, when we talked about law, you know, the reflection on law, and I remember asking you the question, because I don't know, it's the law that is the problem. So for example, uh, you know, robbing a bank, for example, is against the law. Woven into that law is the punishment and not the possibility of redemption or reconciliation or restitution or anything else like that. That's where that's where the problem is, maybe, and that's where it needs to change, right? Yes, I think that's where it needs to change because when you think about back to our reflection on law, we define law as the legislation of God's love. A law is set into place, and when there's violations of that law, then the law defines what types of fines or restrictions or punishments are associated with those violations. But the goal of that is what gets obscured when we're dealing with our current narrative of criminal justice and I think that love implies a particular relationship and I think that when laws are violated then yes the punishment or whatever associated with those violations as defined by the law ought to be toward rehabilitation restoration redemption those things which is not the case in any way which is not the case the the law simply or the statute was the word i was looking for the statute just dictates or prescribes punishment but not any type of reconciliation restitution in fact if you pay a fine for a crime that does not go to the victim it goes to the state you use as an example here the the Manhattan Declaration, a call to Christian consciousness, which was released in November of 2009. And within the preamble of the, of the Declaration, it states, Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming God's word, seeking justice in our societies, resisting tyranny, and reaching out with compassion to the poor, oppressed, and the suffering. And you're going to quote more of it, but evidently the declaration itself was about abortion and the biblical definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman. But you're right that there is an applicability to criminal justice issues. And obviously if they, in the preamble, it states seeking justice in our societies and resisting tyranny and reaching out with compassion to the poor, oppressed, and suffering, which certainly would include those who are part of the criminal justice system or then caught up within the criminal justice system. But the declaration itself doesn't address the issue of criminal justice. But you think it relates or you wish it had or you think it should? So when we read in the conclusion of the declaration, it says that the biblical purpose of law is to preserve order and serve justice and the common good. Yet laws that are unjust, and especially laws that purport to compel citizens to do what is unjust, undermine the common good rather than serve it. And so when we think about the common good, you you go back to our first episode when we talked about how the way that crime is punished, somebody comes down here to prison, and prison doesn't serve to make them better people. It actually makes them worse. And now they get out and do something 
times and again worse than they did before they came in here in the first place? How does that serve the common good? Those are the types of questions that we've tried to address here. And it's the types of things that like the Declaration would address implicitly, but nobody would apply those things explicitly to issues of criminal justice. They just overlook that and they don't even think of those statements in reference to the criminal justice system. Well, and I think uh, probably a, a point would be because the way you just articulated it, most people don't necessarily ha have never even had the opportunity or, or, you know, to think of it in those terms. In fact, as you were, as you were talking, I was thinking of a, a friend of mine, a guy I know that has served as a parole officer and who not too long ago when I spoke about some of these issues from the pulpit, uh, felt like that I was had a bleeding heart. <laughs> yeah, or dissing him or, or something like that because that was his. And, and then when I, when I talked to him, and, and later he went back and listened to the entire sermon, and so he agreed that, yeah, I wasn't necessarily putting down his profession of the criminal justice system. I got a feeling that if I were to ask him, so the, the goal of incarcerating these guys is, first of all, okay, punishment. Separate them from society, but ultimately the goal would be to rehabilitate them in a way so that when they go back into society that they become productive citizens or you know they don't they don't rob people or kill people anymore right but if i were to ask him does that happen is that is that the way it works if the recidivism rate is somewhere around 70 percent and that's the last i saw it i does incarcerating these people make them better equipped to go out and become a productive citizen or does it make them less likely to go out and become better citizens? I would guess that he would admit that it probably makes them less likely. And if that's the reality, then if that's the reality, what, what should I even do? I mean, yeah, well, when I think you, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think. Yeah. Well, when the reality is recognized, you know, that speaks powerfully to the church. And the church, in recognizing this, needs to also recognize its position in society. The church, man, is a powerful vehicle. You know, it may have lost some ground, maybe politically, socially, but it's still a powerful voice because it still operates with the support of God, with the power of God. And so by that alone, the church is a powerful vehicle as both a herald to be able to speak to these issues, as well as to be a servant the society that we find ourselves in. And so it can, it can speak to these issues and then find itself in a position to be a servant to help rectify these issues, whether or not that's directly, you know, in the legislative process or whatever the case may be. Well, I guess maybe just to complete the point, and, and this has helped me think a little bit more about it. If we're talking about abortion, which is killing of unborn babies, it resonates with a lot of people because it was innocent life. If everyone's created in the image of God, certainly you know, the unborn baby is and has these rights and everything. And so and so abortion takes that life and that right away, and that resonates with a lot of believers, I guess, maybe put it that way. Thinking about this prison institution sets out here just outside of town with a razor wire and everything else like it. And I've said before that for eight years or so, I drove right past this, you know, this prison every week, having no really clue what was going on on the inside and thinking, well, yeah, I probably ought to do something there because, you know, Jesus said something to the effect of when I was in prison, you visited me. 
and and yet not knowing what to do or not doing anything and, and basically being able to to cognitively put it out of my mind once I drove on past because the thinking probably in some way was and I'm not bragging on myself but I would guess that a lot of people probably felt this way it was well whatever's happening there those guys deserve it they committed a crime they did did the crime did time right thinking in terms of the punishment rather than a human being created in the image of God with the rights of reconciliation restitution gospel that that's to me is where the gospel comes in if I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if I believe that that no one is beyond the grace of God, regardless of who you are or what you've done or how you grew up or whatever, that God's grace is not just available but is able, is sufficient to change and transform a life. Then to just drive by and go, well, I guess they're getting what they deserve. If, if we're just, to just, it ought to transform not just the life but the way that I, approach the entire system, I guess, is is my point. Which kind of fleshes out for me, you know, you mentioned liberation theologies and social gospel projects that really isolate the church's mission to mere humanitarian efforts, where the church's mission is the Great Commission, which is the gospel to all nations. That is, everyone to hear and to give everyone the opportunity to hear and respond and be saved, regardless of where you find yourself at. Yeah, and when it comes to, you know, liberation theologies or, you know, the social gospel projects, you have to recognize their commitment to the changing of certain systems or structures or whatever. But do they really believe that the gospel has the power to change individual lives and if it has the power to change individual lives then it has the power to change systems and institutions and 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 societies and that is consistent with the coming kingdom of God and so I think that you know ultimately is the question that every believer has to ask him or herself does the gospel have that power is it working powerfully in their lives and if there's evidence of it working powerfully in their lives then that ought to give us hope that it can work in somebody else's life as well. And is there any other, and it begs the question, I think, is there any other power, any other thing that has that power to change lives, to change institutions, to change society or culture? No, but the application of that power certainly has ripple effects that works beyond itself. And so I, the question that keeps coming back to me is, so what to do? And, and this is why I think that in bringing all this together and, or in concluding all this, we need to focus on the gospel because I do think as a child of God, this is our responsibility. This is our inheritance. This is our authority and power. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember I was sitting in a seminary class one time. It, it was an ethics class. And the, the professor asked the question, does culture change the church or does church change culture? And I knew the right answer. The right answer was church changed culture. That's the way it ought to be anyway. But I knew that if I answered it that way, in fact, everybody's sitting there, almost everybody, with that bewildered look on their face, okay, I don't want to say the wrong thing or how am I going to answer this? Because I knew that if I said, well, church changes culture, then his question was going to be, okay, give me an example. How is it changing culture today? 
And as I sat there and thought through it, I couldn't think of any way that church or the gospel was changing culture today. So this is taking just, I think, seconds running through my mind. Had a brother sitting next to me over here from South Korea. and He raised his hand, said, church changes culture. Professor says, how? Give me an example. And he says, well, in South Korea, and this conversation took place back in the 90s, he said, over the last 25 to 30 years, the gospel has not only taken root in South Korea, but it has swept through the country. It has literally changed our country. And of course, at that point, you know, some of the largest churches in the world at that point were in South Korea. That Christianity had, had not only taken root, but it was definitely flourishing in, in South Korea. He said before the gospel, before Christianity, before the church, the status of women was basically chattel. That women were not considered fully human in the sense that they had all, all the rights, you know. I mean, it was a, a man's world and a man's society, and women were considered basically to be property. He said, but with the gospel, with the growth of Christianity and the influence and the impact of the church in culture, that has literally changed, that now women were considered full members of, of society, and it has raised the status of women. You know, you see that uh, in the New Testament, this is what happened with the Lord Jesus, that he, he, uh, he raised the status of women in particular. And then, as you look at early church history, within 300 years, the church had so influenced or impacted a pagan culture, and I'm talking about the Roman Empire, that it literally transformed it. I mean, you know, so now you have Constantine and the Roman Emperor embracing Christianity and making it where at not too many years before it was a these were persecuted people and a persecuted religion to even believe in Christ was against the law and now it becomes basically the law of the land because Christians had literally changed culture with their theology, with their beliefs, with the way they lived and the way they lived out the gospel. Now what happened since was it kind of became institutionalized and which robbed the gospel of its power I think and that really I think is a big part of the problem today. Yeah, and but let me give you an example that's a little closer to home. When you think about the power of the gospel or the church changing culture as opposed to the culture changing the church. So when you have Burrow Kane, who was the warden the Angola prison complex in Louisiana, who inherited you know a prison that was dubbed the bloodiest prison in America and in 1995 he made appeals to the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to start a degree program within the walls of Angola. A lot of those guys are, you know, you know, serving life terms. They will never leave Angola. He began to implement this, and he began to see that what was once America's bloodiest prison became one of America's safest prisons because of the power of the gospel to change a culture that had been so ingrained in a institution that they prided themselves on being the most violent, the most dangerous. Nobody wants to come to Angola. You know, we're going to perpetuate this reputation. Well, when the gospel is injected into that in this way, it changed all of that. It got the attention of the nation. And it, that was followed by a study of, of Brian Johnson, who was the head of the Religious Studies Department at Baylor University at one time. He published a book called More God, Less Crime 
on faith-based initiatives within the state of Texas were launched by Carol Vance, who worked with the George Bush administration when he's, he was the governor here, who partnered with Prison Fellowship, you know, the faith-based initiatives to be able to reduce recidivism rates, this and that. And then finally, in 2010, with the institution of a similar seminary program in the state of Texas, you know, I became a part of that. And one of the things that was drilled into our heads is we have the potential to change the prison culture in Texas. Now, 10 or 12 years into this project, people can look back and say, well, this has worked. You know, there's been significant studies by Brian Johnson's team from Baylor at both Louisiana and at Texas to demonstrate statistically how the gospel inside these institutions have changed these institutions. Staff assaults are down. Property destructions are down. Inmate-on-inmate assaults are down. These statistics are black and white proof that the gospel works. And people on the outside will champion this. Believers on the outside will say, hey, praise God, this is working. Well, why can't it work out there as well? If it works to change the culture within prison, why can't it change the larger culture of criminal justice in general? Why can't it be used to shape the larger narrative of criminal justice in a way that is proven within the walls of these places works? And I say that because just feedback that I've had from the book in the last five months since the book has came out, you know, a sister in Christ who has labored diligently within the prison system to see now, these types of changes instituted, she had somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction against this as being part of the social justice movement, the social gospel, you know, commensurate with yeah, liberation theologies or whatever. But she would also agree that the changes that the seminary programs have instituted inside these prisons have been more uh, significant and more powerful than any piece of legislation in the last 100 years. I would agree with that. But that is evidence that the gospel has the power to change it whole scale, the same way it has changed it on the ground level. So we are advocating for the gospel. We're asking God's people, believers in Christ, individuals whose lives have been changed by this powerful gospel of Jesus Christ and have received the sweet and great salvation in Jesus to to live first of all and apply the gospel to every area of life and society including criminal justice I, I just really I think I'd like to close with just a point you make that a balance that does not reduce the herald of the gospel to some abstract charismatic address that is it's not just what is preached, but it's but it's lived. It's emphasized. It emphasizes it to the point where it bolsters the concept of the church as a servant. And again, living out the gospel, God's people, that through the preaching of the cross, the hands of Christ extend into the trash bins of society, so that the gospel is good. <laughs> it is effective for all, including for those that society or culture itself is basically thrown away. The good news still has that power Hallelujah. to change lives. And Amen. by that, it can change prison systems, families, communities, 
cities, states, nations. It can change the world, Pastor. So, preach the gospel. Preach it. Live it. Live it. Walk in Christ. Thank you for joining us for this Hurt with Fetters podcast. Jason, thank you for your work, your views, for helping us to see and understand how the gospel applies to not just our life, but to our culture as well, and to the issues that, whether we understand it or not, or believe it or not, impact us all as individuals, as, as people of God, as children of God. May God bless you and continue your work. And our final word is, live it, preach it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and even the Gentile. God bless. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.